KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, to end Israel's war in Gaza, we need the broadest coalition possible. People with very different visions of what a just peace looks like must work together to stop this war and bring a just peace between two nations. That's what D.D. Guttenplan says. He'll explain later in the show, Donna's editor of The Nation. Also later in the hour, a conversation about one of my favorite writers of books about spies, Mick Heron, author of the Slow Horses series of books and also the TV series. Slow Horses returned to TV Wednesday, November 29th with season three. We'll have comment from John Powers. Of course, he's critic at large on the NPR show, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. But first, today's political update. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we start today with news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this program. We have talked often about the UAW strike and the victory in auto contracts with Detroit's big three, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, big salary increases and an end to the two-tier system that gave new hires lower pay and worse benefits than old timers. Critics and naysayers argued when that contract was signed that the UAW was cutting its own throat, that under the new contract, union-made cars and trucks would become more expensive so that the Japanese cars and trucks with lower labor costs would win a bigger and bigger share of the market and eventually the UAW would be representing almost no one. But right away, Toyota announced it would give workers a 9% raise beginning in January. That's five weeks from now. Then Nissan said its 9,000 American workers would get raises of 10% and it would end its two-tiered pay system. Then Honda announced a pay raise of 11% uh, for workers at its plants in Ohio, Indiana, and Georgia. And Volkswagen also announced it will raise pay by 11% at its Chattanooga assembly plant, effective December 2023, which I believe is next week. Uh, What is going on? What happened to the advantage of lower labor costs for non-union manufacturers? Well, there are always two ways to close a disparity. Either the high end comes down or the low end goes up. And uh, we are seeing the low end going up precisely because, not just uh, because of the UAW contracts, but because the relatively new administration of the UAW did this all in glaring public light so that it's no secret uh, and, you know, there's there's a body of work uh, by, a, I think now, emeritus Princeton economist named Henry Farber uh, years ago, saying that in any industry uh, that was more or less at least 25% unionized, the other companies normally scramble to catch up because their workers would perceive that it was a better deal to be working in this case at Ford, GM, or Stellantis, so why am I breaking my butt for Nissan in Tennessee and Mississippi? Also, I should add that this is at a moment when, for the first time in a very long time, new factories uh, funded by the Inflation Reduction Act 
new factories for electric vehicles and for batteries are going up all over the non-union South. And in fact, uh, a couple of those factories uh, are going to go union uh, because they are uh, Ford or GM factories that are covered under the new contract. And so uh, you're beginning to see real wage pressure on uh, the non-union uh, transplants in the South and the Midwest and good old uh, Elon Musk Tesla factories in uh, California, Nevada, and Texas. So obviously the plan here is to preempt the UAW from organizing uh, these plants. Uh, is that going to work? We don't know yet. Uh, just uh, uh, as we speak on Wednesday, the UAW publicly announced today the beginning of the, its major organizing campaign at these factories, at Toyota, Tesla, and so on, uh, hiring uh, as its organizing director, um, a, a guy named uh, Brian Shepard, who was one of the lead organizers for many years for SEIU, which is one of the relatively few, union, few unions that has grown considerably during the otherwise, you know, descending arc of union membership elsewhere in the labor movement. So they are announcing it. Uh, it, it will be uh, very interesting. It has been, it's historically harder uh, to get a, a unionization recognition and a contract in the private sector than it was, you know, during the New Deal era and than it is in any other country uh, on, the, on the face of the earth. There's all these ways in which companies can uh, avoid this. The current National Labor Relations Board has reversed some uh, earlier decisions that have enabled companies to uh, avoid unionization by doing things that are illegal, like firing workers on the organizing campaign, but for which there was no effective penalty. Now there are going to be effective penalties. And we may even see the reversal of a 50-year-old uh, standard, which essentially uh, let companies just stall on bargaining, even once the union is uh, is certified, as, for instance, Starbucks, uh, Starbucks management has done at the 300-plus Starbucks outlets that have voted to go union. And Amazon is doing uh, in Staten Island. Yes, yes. This is sort of normal operating procedure for uh, uh, for, for uh, American employers. Uh, there's a whole union avoidance industry, including law firms like Littler Mendelssohn and others that we have written about in my magazine uh, that do almost nothing but uh, tell companies how they can break the law and not pay serious penalties and thereby avoid you know, their workers going union. Uh, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, uh, Joe Biden's NLRB, and, you know, uh, we'll see what the combined forces of the UAW and the NLRB can do as they go into what is going to be a, a pretty tough struggle. So the companies, the non-union companies that announced significant wage increases for their employees uh, were Toyota, Nissan, Honda, uh, also Hyundai, and Volkswagen. There is one missing from this list. The one that's owned by that very rich idiot uh, who owns uh, uh, what was formerly Twitter, uh, that being Tesla, that being Elon Musk. And you've often pointed out 
the interesting fact that Toyota, Nissan, Honda, Hyundai, Volkswagen are all based in countries where unionization of their factories is standard operating procedure. That is not the case for Elon Musk. No, no. And, you know, I mean, Elon Musk is also right now engaged in a battle because Tesla has expanded its factories and facilities to nations where unionization is the norm. And he's right now fighting the entire Swedish labor movement over the mechanics who work for Tesla in Sweden. There are no Tesla factories in Sweden, but there are sure a lot of Swedes who buy Teslas. The mechanics are trying to unionize and the other unions uh, in, in Sweden, which is a country that has 90% of its workforce unionized, the other unions are refusing uh, to move Tesla goods, et cetera, et cetera, in, in support of those strikers. I, I should add that during the New Deal period, this was how Amer one way that American unions grew tremen tremendously. There could be sympathy strikes, unions could boycott uh, a, a, another company in another industry where workers were on strike. That ended with the passage of the Anti-Union Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. And we should be cognizant that unions, except in the public sector, which was never covered by the National Labor Relations Act, unions have not grown a lot since 1947. But Musk has now shoved his nose into countries where unionization is the norm, uh, certainly Sweden, certainly Germany, where they do have factories. Uh, where there's a unionization campaign that is bubbling. Uh, also in China, where he doesn't really have to worry about this. Uh, <laughs> there is a union in China, but it is a, uh, a really an adjunct of the government. Given that it is off, the local unions are often headed by the plant managers, uh, not workers. So he doesn't have to worry about it in China, but he does have to worry about it in Europe. And if the UAW really gets rolling, he may have to worry about it in uh, California. Next topic. <clears throat> what are Trump's plans if he wins re-election on November 5th? Trump has never run on a platform, uh, but nevertheless, you have been able to discern some of his intentions. Uh, he has made some promises about changes at the Justice Department you discovered. Well, yeah, uh, I, I should add that we're sort of going on two tracks here. One track is the Trump track, uh, where he talks about, you know, the Justice Department has to be uh, basically his lawyers, not necessarily impartial. Uh, impartial professionals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they can't be impartial professionals. They have to essentially do his bidding. And, you know, he's kind of got an enemies list, which begins with the people he thinks betrayed him when he was president, like uh, Bill Barr, who was his uh, last official attorney general, who told him, no, you didn't uh, win the election. Um, people like that, but, you know, also the Bidens and uh, anybody else who uh, he thinks uh, has run afoul of him. And so there's that. But on this other track, they're sort of going down parallel tracks. And even though parallel lines don't merge, in this case, they do. You have the Heritage Foundation, the far-right organization, which has only grown more far-right since its founding in 1980. You have the Heritage Foundation publishing uh, its quadrennial to-do list 
for uh, in any incoming Republican presidential administration. The current to-do list, which at the behest of my magazine's executive editor, David Dayen, I read all goddamn 920 pages of. And we thank uh, you for that. We thank you for that. Yes, specify, I'm underpaid, specifies what a uh, right-wing president, parentheses, most probably Trump, close parentheses, uh, should do. And it's full of references as to how you can circumvent uh, the civil service. It calls federal employees uh, underemployed and overpaid. So you get right in the introduction that appears that uh, you get the flavor of the general document. But, you know, it, it, it shows how political appointees can find new ways to circumvent th- these professionals. I want to talk about both tracks here. Uh, the Trump track, as you call it, you wrote about this in the new issue of the American Prospect. You say that his first tasks that he's given himself, this is in his campaign speeches, are uh, to use the Justice Department to bring criminal charges against basically uh, his own White House staff, his attorney general, his for- as who you, you've named, Bill Barr, his former chief of staff, John Kelly, the former chair of the Joint Chiefs, Mark, Mark Milley, and this is even ahead of putting Joe Biden and his family members in jail. So isn't it kind of unusual for a president running for re-election to make his number one enemies his own high officials from when he was in office? Well, the, the issue here is that those officials every now and then had to say no to Trump, which was, you know, an unforgivable sin. I should add that all of this stands out in particular, because it's not like he's having policy proposals. You know, one of his stock lines now on the stump is that he will be your or our revenge. I mean, essentially, that's what he's he's, uh, running uh, on, that um, all of these presumably woke folk who either worked for him or worked in the federal government or he doesn't like, He's going to get them. That's basically his uh, his platform. So what exactly are Joe Biden's crimes aside from winning the election? Those have not yet been stipulated. <laughs> uh, you know, that that's, uh, you know, parentheses yet to come close parentheses. <laughs> okay. At this juncture, it's Joe Biden's existence as president, which is an unforgivable crime. Now, on the other track, the Heritage Foundation 920-page manifesto about the tasks, the to-do list, as you call it, for any Republican income president who might be inaugurated on January 20th, 2025, there was some good news in that plan, I learned from your article in The American Prospect. Uh, the, a Heritage Founda- Foundation official announced that, quote, there are no plans within Project 2025, as they call it, related to the Insurrection Act. I was happy to hear that. Well, insofar as that literally goes, insofar as the word Insurrection Act does not appear, that is true. Why are they referring to concerns about invoking the Insurrection Act in a Republican administration? Yes. Well, uh, apparently one of Trump's favored uh, Justice Department alums, Jeffrey Clark, 
according to uh, the material that has been released from depositions in the January 6th trial and the federal case that's been brought against Trump, Clark was the chief advocate for setting up other slates of electors, fake electors, and that Mike Pence could uh, overrule essentially the result of the election. And at this point uh, in conversation, somebody said, but there would be huge demonstrations uh, in all the streets. And Jeffrey Clark said, well, that's why there's an insurrection act. Meaning if, if you're out there protesting either that or out there protesting from the anywhere from the center left to farther left, uh, there's the Insurrection Act. Uh, Trump can send in the army and so much for the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, and a lot of our constitutional guarantees. So let me just point out the Heritage Foundation says it has no plans related to the Insurrection Act. Well, there you go. <laughs> However, Jeffrey Clark is one of the 400 or so right-wingers uh, who contributed ideas to the Heritage Foundation tome. And in reading that tome, you will find that it is much more explicit and detailed about the enemies list that Trump or any other Republican president should be going after. Now, I understand that one of the most spellbinding sections of the Heritage Foundation plan is their discussion of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. What is the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and why are the Republicans interested in it? Well, it's part of the, the keystone of the civil service system that we have. It, you know, it says when a vacancy occurs, uh, the next highest ranking civil servant can occupy that slot. The Heritage Foundation rather carefully points out ways in which that can be bypassed or circumvented so that so that a political uh, agent of Trump basically can take that slot. And there's also a great deal of emphasis on first day appointments, uh, not only because we're Trump or a Republican president, uh, the Senate might not be rushing to confirm his nominees. And there are all kinds of suggestions about how and a you know interim de facto Trumpite can immediately control that department and immediately start winnowing its professional ranks uh, by going after uh, all of the you know, civil servants who might actually be wanting to enforce the law. And what does the Heritage Foundation's uh, wish list propose to do about the Biden administration's climate fascism? Essentially, get rid of the scientists. It, it, it says the uh, Center for Disease Control uh, should not really be able to propose policies. They should just produce analyses. S same sort of thing with the National Institutes of Health. They call it wokeism. Others might call what these folks do empiricism, which is really uh, the Republicans' sort of chief ideological target. But uh, that's what they propose. So they do, I should say. They do say there is one study that the CDC should undertake, and that is to investigate further adverse effects of abortions. So let it not be said that the spirit of science is totally dead at the Heritage Foundation. Well, you read all 920 pages of the Heritage Foundation to-do list for 2025, and we thank you for that. 
but Trump does not read as much as you do. In fact, from what I understand, he has a hard time reading a single page that is put in front of him explaining what people want him to do in a day. He works from his gut. He talks off the top of his head. He, and he's pretty lazy. Do you think he has any idea how much work it's going to be to purge the federal government of wokeism and make America a Christian nation? <laughs> well, I, honestly, part of the function of the heritage uh, tome is uh, to sort of get this running, whether Trump uh, is, is knows any of the details or not. Uh, but there is a convergence. There is a convergence between the spirit of Trump and the letter of the Heritage Foundation. To, taken separately and taken together, they would simply undermine the Constitution and the United States. Finally, it's time for Where's Melania? An intermittent feature of this broadcast. Melania made a rare appearance in public on Tuesday. She joined all the other living first ladies at the memorial service in Atlanta for Rosalind Carter. Melania sat right next to Michelle Obama. Also present, Laura Bush and Jill Biden. A and of course, Hillary Clinton. All of them, of course, detest Melania's husband. So Tuesday, we had side-by-side -side America's First Ladies, Hillary, Michelle, and then Melania. What a reminder of the disaster that we lived through and which we could return to if Trump and Melania uh, return to the White House in next January. Any comment? Well, I should only point out that you really can't find Melania anywhere on the stump this year. This may be one of her very few public appearances. So it may require death, future deaths of first ladies uh, for us actually to see Melania. Uh, I don't know. Uh, she clearly has put uh, some protective distance, I think, uh, between her and the Donald uh, more than there was in uh, certainly more than there was in 2016, and so far more than there was in 2020. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. The same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The ceasefire in Gaza has been extended, which means more Israeli hostages will be returned in exchange for the release of more Palestinian prisoners, and more convoys of aid trucks will provide food, fuel, and medicine to the residents of Gaza. More than a million of them have been driven from their homes by the Israeli military. What will it take to move from the current ceasefire to a real solution to this conflict? For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. His books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, also The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today at the magazine's offices in Manhattan. Don, welcome back. Thanks, John. Always good to be with you. You write in The Nation that 
The only plausible peaceful solution to this conflict has long been obvious. What is it? Well, quoting Edward Said, as I always do when I'm thinking about Israel and Palestine, because no one has thought about it as clearly or as deeply as he, uh, this is a piece of land that two peoples think they both have a perfect right to. And the only just solution when two peoples believe they have a perfect right to something if you concede that neither of them are delusional, and I, I understand that there are those who don't concede that, but I think Edward did did concede it, and I certainly concede it, is to share the land. Now, you know, that leads on to a whole series of very important questions. One state, two states, shared sovereignty. And I'm not dismissing or diminishing the importance of those questions, but the obvious part is that they're going to have to share the land, which means they're going to have to live with each other, which means they're going to have to stop murdering each other. Let us note that the official announced position of the Biden administration, stated by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on November 8th, was that, quote, the Palestinian people's voices and aspirations must be at the center of post-crisis governance in Gaza, and that, quote, Palestinian-led governance in Gaza unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority are U.S. requirements. Uh, Palestinians living side by side with Israelis in states of their own with equal measures of security, freedom, opportunity, and dignity, close quote, the official American policy. That's pretty close to what we want, isn't it? Well, it's what some of us want. I mean, you know, I would say some of your listeners, some of our readers want a two-state solution. Some of them would prefer a single secular democratic state. Uh, I think that's a, a debate worth having at some point, but I don't think this is the point. I will say this, that yes, the position of the U.S. government has been in favor of two states since Camp David, um, and it remains the position. It is also true that to adapt Abba Eben's formula about the Palestinians, the United States government has missed many opportunities <laughs> uh, to actually do something about moving towards a two-state solution as opposed to offering lip service. I mean, for example, many governments around the world recognize the state of Palestine as a government. If the United States had done that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago, that would have strengthened the hand of the Palestinian Authority for all its faults and its abiding virtue for those of us who believe in you know, sharing the land is that it accepts the obligation to share the land, whereas Hamas does not. Um, so, you know, the United States government had it within its power. It has it within its power tomorrow to say we will recognize if the Palestinians can form a unity government, we will recognize it as the authority over whatever territory they arrive at in negotiations with the state of Israel. They haven't done that, but they could. Well, the immediate task is to make the current ceasefire permanent. The two forces doing the most to achieve that are, first of all, the movement in Israel to bring home the hostages. There was a demonstration in Tel Aviv last Saturday night with 100,000 people, I read. And then 
Joe Biden, who has been pushing Netanyahu hard on the ceasefire and hostage exchange. But I think Biden needs us to overcome the pressure from APAC and its many allies in Congress, who, of course, call for a renewal of Israel's war in Gaza. So the strength of the peace camp in the United States is extremely important. And as you have noted, the two-state solution has always been defeated. A one-state solution has never been considered. But we need to work again for some resolution along these lines. And that means we need to assemble the broadest, most effective coalition possible. That is the theme of your editorial in The Nation. You point out that for starters, we all need to engage in what you call the delicate, challenging task of learning to speak a shared language. And just to show how delicate and difficult this is, what about the term genocide? What about the term genocide? I think brandishing the term genocide as your first resort to describing what happened, what's happening in Gaza is a terrible disservice to actual victims of genocide. However, I have to say my own thinking, and I've thought that for some time, my own thinking, though, was moved by a piece that Omar Bartov wrote for the New York Times. Omar Bartov is one of the greatest living historians of genocide, and he is deeply concerned to stop Israel before it commits genocide. So his point is, if you want to stop a prospective genocide, don't talk as if it's already happened. Talk about the urgency of doing something now to stop it. And I, I think that that's incredibly clear. It gives us a moral mandate for the urgency of both protesting and using the leverage that the U.S. government has over the Israeli government, which I think Biden has been criminally slow to use. A term that we hear a lot on college campuses today. What about settler colonialism? Well, again, settler colonialism is one of those terms that makes the people who deploy it feel better, feel superior. It is undeniable that the Israeli government, particularly when it's a right-wing government, but also under labor, has facilitated settlements in the occupied territories, which are violations of international law. So in that sense, certainly Israel can be described as acting like a settler colonial government. The problem with using that as a description of what's happened and, and what's happening is that it negates the history of Israel, Zionism as a movement, and the people who live in Israel on two fronts. One is that the yearning of the Jewish people to return to Zion, even if it's based on myth, which most religious beliefs are, is nonetheless a belief that's been held for millennia. So you're not going to you're not going to argue people out of it just because you think it doesn't make any sense. And the second point is that by describing Israel as settler colonialist, you're encouraging the fantasy that it is in some sense like the French in Algeria, which is to say, if you make life difficult enough for the Israelis, they'll just leave. And first of all, they have most of them have nowhere else to go, so they're not going to leave. That is their country, just as Palestine is the country of the Palestinians, whether or not they have a state. And secondly, it erases the fact that at least half of current Israelis are Mizrahi Jews, i.e. Jews who come from the Arab world, which by most calculus of privilege 
means they don't count as white. So, you know, you're you're negating those people's existence by calling it simply a settler colonialist society as if they were all like the English people who came to Australia or Canada or for that matter, the United States. And, you know, that's the third problem with it, which is, sure, let's all oppose settler colonialism. But, you know, to quote Booker T. Washington, put your bucket down where you are. So if you want to oppose settler colonialism, start a movement in America to return land to Native Americans. And when you've done that, then you have some credibility about returning other people's land that was stolen from them. The Netanyahu government has promised to renew hostilities. And their argument is uh, Hamas is playing an extremely cynical game. They kidnap women and children because they know Israelis value Jewish life above all else and will stop the war briefly to get them back. And playing Hamas's game only gives them time to strengthen their terrorist movement. What do you say to all of that? Well, there are two things that are wrong with that. One is, you know, you talked about Israeli hostages and Hamas prisoners, but of course, a lot of the Hamas prisoners are are children and women. So, you know, why not talk about hostages and hostages? The Israeli state takes hostages too. The second point, though, and I think the more salient one, is that Netanyahu's pledge to eliminate Hamas is a fantasy. You know, that as we point out in this editorial, Israel claims to have eliminated something like 2,000 Hamas fighters, and that was at a cost of tens of thousands of civilians. So if there are 30,000 Hamas fighters, as they're supposed to be, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties if Israel pursues the war in the same way that it pursued it before the, the pause. And all that that will do is generate generations more recruits for whatever organization springs up to replace Hamas, even if Israel could succeed in eliminating it, which it can't. So it's not just a fantasy, it's a murderous, self-destructive fantasy, and it needs to be abandoned and ended. And then what about the phrase, from the river to the sea? Well, you know, I don't mean to evade the question, John, but I think really people who want to argue about language when we need to be arguing about, when we need to be working hard to stop the slaughter are wasting time that is too valuable to waste. I mean, you know, I remember going to stop the war demonstrations for the Iraq war in London 20 years ago and being put off by signs saying from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free because it struck me then as a non-Zionist, but someone with a lot of Zionists in my family, that it was, uh, you know, an argument for the elimination of the state of Israel, which again, you can make arguments for and against, but, you know, I think any Jew who cares at all about the state of Israel will hear that as an, as an argument for eliminating one ethno state among all the ethno states in the world. So if, if what you're interested in, this does come closer to the argument I make in the nation, which is mostly not about language. It's about a choice we have. And the choice is whether we want to achieve change or catharsis. Shouting about genocide, shouting slogans that alienate people who you need to have in your coalition in order to exert maximum pressure on the American and Israeli governments may make you feel better. But it is politically not as effective as using language that everybody can march behind, that everybody can assemble under, that we can all support and it doesn't need to have 
to be explained to people because those explanations, sometimes they work and sometimes they just feel like gaslighting to the people who are being told, oh, you're wrong. You shouldn't take offense at this. Well, you can try and convince people they shouldn't be put off, but maybe better to just work with them on the immediate objective of extending this pause to a real ceasefire. And I have to say here, I want to give a shout out to Bernie Sanders, who, as always, uh, has shown the path to effective moral and political leadership. You know, a lot of people on the left were trolling Bernie, particularly on social media, for his reluctance to advocate for a ceasefire. And the nation advocated for a ceasefire weeks and weeks ago. You know, that was that was our line. It remains our position. But if you look at what Bernie's been doing lately, he's been arguing for extending this pause, turning it into a ceasefire and moving to negotiations, which may well involve putting considerable pressure, not just on the government of Israel, but also on Hamas and also on the Palestinian Authority, but using the leverage that the U.S. has and using the fact that Although Israel has said for decades they won't negotiate with terrorists, they always negotiate with terrorists. They're negotiating now with Hamas. These are fruitful negotiations. If they're fruitful enough to bring home the hostages, why not make them fruitful enough to stop this war? D.D. Guttenplan, his editorial, To Stop the Slaughter in Gaza, We Need the Broadest Coalition Possible. It was published at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to take a step back from Israel's war in Gaza and talk about one of my favorite writers of books about spies, Mick Herron, author of the Slow Horses series of books and also TV shows. It's returned to TV Wednesday, November 29th with season three on Apple TV+. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by something like 5 million listeners on the radio and another 3.5 million on the podcast. Wow. <laughs> He's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue. His work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about the films Barbie and Oppie. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, you're the first person I know who recommended Mick Heron's books to me. At the beginning, the very first one that was titled Slow Horses, this was well before he became an international literary sensation with total sales of more than 3 million copies. There are now a total of eight books in the Slow Horses series, plus one new one a few months ago that's a prequel. For those who know nothing about all of this, what is the premise here? Who are the slow horses? 
They are members of MI5 who have fallen out of favor for one reason or another with the people in power. They've either made a mistake in the field, they've had a drug problem, they're overly violent, they are prying or unlikable, and they get shipped over to a place called Slough House where they are all working on almost nonsense jobs. And the reason why they simply haven't been fired is that in the spy world, it raises too many questions of, of ministerial control and interest to go through all of that. So what they do is they simply farm them out to this place in the East End of London, where they are overseen by, by a brilliant spy named Jackson Lamb, played on this TV series by Gary Oldman, who is at once brilliant and staggeringly cruel and rude to all of them <laughs> as he tells them how stupid he, they are, farts in their faces, is constantly drunk, looks lousy, and in fact pushes them around. And yet, and yet, even though these are slow horses, then they all dream of getting back to MI5 and actually having real careers, which will not happen. And yet, even though they're considered to be the losers, the slow horses in the field, as it happens in every case in the book, the biggest thing that's happening somehow stumbles into their lap, or they're given it because someone in power wants that to be done handled badly. So they are given the thing, and then they do it, and then they wind up handling it well. One more thing about Jackson Lamb. He's fiercely defensive about his employees, even though he's terribly abusive of them. Yes. He tells his superiors, they may be screw-ups, but they're my screw-ups. Yes. And in, in fact, in, in this re relationship, he, he's slightly different to say the, some of the classic spy people, because you have the sense that Jackson Lamb doesn't actually believe at this point in any of the things that spies do. But the one thing he does have is loyalty to the people who are connected to him. You know, and, and, you know, I think that's kind of the burnt out end of a, of a longtime spy who no longer believes in the ideology, but does believe you protect your own. Critics say that Mick Heron is the John le Carré of our generation. What do you say about that? Well, I think I probably have said it. So <laughs> I, 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 I can only think it's a brilliant pursuit. <laughs> and, and this gives me a chance to quote the old chestnut from the 18th Brumaire by Marx, where he comments that history repeats itself. The first time is tragedy, the second is farce. And if you know the John le Carré books, you know that when he was reinventing the spy novel starting in the 60s, they nearly always ended with tragic endings. You know, that people were destroyed unfairly because spying does that. People's lives are ruined or, or, and they feel meaningless and are often betrayed and killed. McCarran has similar kinds of things happen, but whereas it's played for tragedy in Le Carre, by now, the, Heron's sense of the spy world is that, it, especially in Britain, is it's kind of comical. And that, in fact, it's now run by clowns. It's no longer the serious business that it was, but it's a place of bureaucratic infight and silliness. So it is now farce rather than tragedy. It's not quite that way. The stories are serious and all the rest. But, the, but that is the difference between Le Carre and McCarran. And what strikes me most about the difference is that Le Carre, of course, started out in the depths of the Cold War, and his books had this critical element to them where he rejected the black and white of good and evil, the evil empire and the defenders of freedom. His world of spies was the gray zone where our spies and their spies sometimes had more in common with each other than with their own overlords who would betray them or mislead them. 
all that is missing from the slow horses because of course it's long after the cold war and tasks the slow horses are given especially in season three which begins this week are much more melodramatic than what happened to uh george smiley they're both more melodramatic and they are much more Britain-centered. So, you know, so that nearly all of the great Lacare novels, even the ones that come later, are set internationally and actually have to do with important international issues. Often what is happening in the slow horses is they are dealing with something where some political person, and there's a there's a Boris Johnson figure who figures large, he's played by Samuel West in this in the series. And he and lots of other people want to privatize the Secret Service. And so what Often plots are set in motion by right-wing schemers or by people who want to privatize. And so that's a very different kind of thing, so that the the criminals are no longer sinister Russians. And there's no ideological thing, except the ideological thing is that the people within MI5 want to protect themselves from being taken over by private corporations, which the the Tory figure, played by Peter Judd, and that's the Boris Johnson figure, his dream is to more or less outsource all of spying. And at that level, all of the slow horses, including the people who are enemies within slow horses who work for MIFF, the one thing they all want is to stop that. Obviously, Mick Heron grew up reading John Le Carre, knows all about this. And it seems like his Jackson Lamb is kind of the opposite of Le Carre's protagonist, George Smiley. Jackson Lamb is, as you've said, flamboyantly offensive and outrageous, and that's certainly not what George Smiley was. Smiley was all discretion, and and everyone kind of worshipped him because he never gave anything away. You never knew what he felt about anything, even when he was triumphantly defeating Carla, (laughs) the great Soviet spy. You could never tell whether he was really satisfied, whether he was dissatisfied, whether he thought it was worth it, whether any of that. I mean, he really plays cards close to the chest. In contrast, Jackson Lamb says what is in his mind at every particular moment. It's often extremely funny. If you watch (laughs) the series, you, you realize, once again, what a fantastic actor Gary Oldman is. You know, this isn't a role that, you know, that is a challenging role. It, it, it is kind of a comic turn as a brilliant slob. And yet Oldman, every single scene finds some new way of doing that so that you're just stunned at how effortlessly good he is. In fact, I was discussing with, with some friends, how was it that he wasn't a huge movie star for the last 30 years in everything? Because he's just a great actor. Let us note that a decade ago, Gary Oldman was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of George Smiley in the adaptation for TV of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Of course, Alec Guinness was our George Smiley. It's an impossible act to follow, and yet Gary Oldman did it. You know, I think that he's better, or or he's certainly more fun as Jackson Lamb. I mean, partly because Lamb is a more fun character, but also there's, I think there's a certain largeness of spirit in Oldman that it is not best served being bottled up. I think there's just a, a life coming from, and a great humor. And and he's really, really funny in the TV series. In the TV series, if you've, if you've read the books, you realize that Jackson Lamb gets a bigger role in the TV series than he does in the books. He's put in the stories earlier, he's more present. And that makes perfect sense because... He's the star and is fun, and no one in their right mind wouldn't give him less time if you're trying to make people watch a TV series. I want to talk about the 
new TV series in just a minute, but first I want to talk about the new book by Mick Heron. came out in September, The Secret Hours. It's billed as a standalone novel. If you have not read the Slow Horses series, The Secret Hours is probably not the place to begin with Mick Heron. But for those who have read The Slow Horses, the pleasures here are big and the surprises at the end are bigger. Yeah, they are. They are. I mean, b- because basically it is a backstory of some of the characters in Slow Horses. They're never identified by name in the in the course of the book, but you learn things about them and that some of the things you learn, I think, hit a new emotional register for the Mick Heron series that you, a- you actually feel some things in a way that you don't in the co- sometimes he's, the comedy is, is so powerful that you don't feel things as deeply as, as you know, he doesn't want you to feel things as deeply as Le Carre wanted to. But somehow in this new one, there are characters who appear and you learn something about them and their stories interesting and touching. And you understand, I think, partly how you get to the cynicism of slow horses by looking at some of the things that happen to the characters along the way. So what can you tell us about the new season three of Slow Horses on Apple TV? Yes, well, well, the short version is that one of the slow horses gets kidnapped and grabbed. And no one is quite sure why at first. And then the slow horses get involved in trying to save her. And this leaves them, leads them into all sorts of complicated things and that touch on all of the big McCarran themes, you know, the bureaucratic infighting, Jackson Lamb's protectiveness toward, toward, his, toward his people, the way that politicians want private security forces to take over. And, and so more or less all of the characters are there. And what's interesting is that if you watch the series, Kristen.com plays the, plays the second in charge at MI5, and she's involved in a struggle with, with her boss, played by Sophie Okonedo, who you might know from Hotel Rwanda, who's a terrific actress and whose style is low-key and therefore plays well off the slightly steamier side of Kristen Scott Thomas. And so you so you have you have these different struggles along the way. You have people you actually have people getting killed. You have more gunfights than usual. But you but by the third season, and I think it was also true of the book, you're now slightly more invested in characters and so that you don't want them to get killed. You know, and yet McCarran does kill people off. I was you know, I mean, I'm sure you probably maybe you saw the New York Times article with him where he was commenting, you actually have to kill some of the characters, otherwise there's no there's no suspense. You know, one of the things that's always unbearable about most things is, is when they don't kill off people you like, then it, it's, it, it's a different series. It just lacks something, even if it's a farcical series, you want to think that in any given scene, somebody you care about or interested in might be gone, because that does give it some oomph. John Powers, final thoughts. One of the things I love about the series is the way that in each book, Mick Heron introduces you to what Slouhouse is by approaching Slouhouse and describing it in a new way. And in each book, he manages to find a brilliant, funny, and perceptive way of telling you what it is without ever repeating anything. I compared it to like, like the, the Hokusai prince of Mount Fuji, where you're all <laughs> seeing the same thing. And he approaches it in a different way. And, and, it, and just in two or divorce terms when you're reading it, 
Because the first time he does it, you think that's a brilliant description. And then the second book, it's also brilliant, but it's completely different. And then the third book, and you realize that he is an incredibly witty and inventive writer. And almost every sentence sings. There's a good joke on almost every page. He's a really wonderful, popular writer. Slow Horses Season 3 premiered on Apple TV Plus on November 29th. Mick Heron's latest book, The Secret Hours, kind of a backstory to the Slow Horses series, was published in September. John Powers, thank you for being the first to recommend Mick Heron to me. And thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Pilgrim Baptist Church, founded in St. Paul after the Civil War by an enslaved man who had escaped from Missouri, has been added to the National Park Service's Underground Railroad Network to Freedom program. The program has more than 700 sites. The St. Paul Church is the first site in Minnesota to be designated as part of the Underground Railroad. Pilgrim Baptist was started by a man named Robert Thomas Hickman. He'd been born into slavery in Boone County, Missouri in 1831. He learned to read and write with, their permit, with the permission of his enslaver and was allowed to preach at several area plantations. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on New Year's Day, 1863. It freed all the slaves held in the Confederate States but it did not apply to slaves in states which remained in the Union, and Missouri was one of those. So in May of 1863, Robert Hickman and a large group of slaves in Missouri escaped, and according to one story, they took to the Mississippi River on a makeshift raft where they were lucky enough to find a steamboat heading north, which towed them to St. Paul. But there's another version of the story that some historians believe is more accurate. They uh, escaped slaves in Missouri, made it to a contraband camp near St. Louis. This was territory controlled eventually by the Federal Army, and they were sent by the Army to Fort Snelling next to St. Paul at the request of Union General Henry Sibley because Fort Snelling was short of workers after the Dakota War that began in 1862, also known as the Sioux Uprising, Fort Snelling in 1863 was a kind of concentration camp for Dakota Sioux people. Hickman preached to black families in St. Paul, holding services in their homes and renting space. In 1863, he led a baptismal service on the Mississippi River and Pilgrim Baptist Church was officially born. Hickman was ordained in 1877 and led the congregation until he died in 1900. In 1928, Pilgrim Baptist moved to its current home on Central Avenue in St. Paul's old Rondo neighborhood. It's Minnesota's oldest and largest black church. It's also the church where the current mayor of St. Paul and its first African-American mayor, Melvin Carter, was baptized. Today, it's Minnesota's oldest and largest Black Baptist church. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. Our thanks to James Walsh of the Minneapolis Star Tribune for this report. 
it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Ah!